All right, this morning we are going to continue in Philippians. Philippians 3, 1 through 11 this morning. Things that don't matter. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in life that we care about, that we think is important, that I guess in some sense it does matter and that it affects our lives, and yet it pales in comparison to the true things that matter. The letters of the New Testament, Philippians, of course, one of these, usually uh, is a mix of good and bad. Actually, I think all of them are a mix of good and bad, uh, bad because they are addressed to real people, people like you and me. And we think about us, we are complicated. We are uh, good in some ways. We do good things. We care about good things. And in some ways we are bad. We do bad things. We care about bad things. So there is a mix. Encouragement, instruction, rebuke, correction, reminder. Because congregations are not monoliths. We are not all the same, right? You and I have different struggles. We have different things that we are good at and bad at. And neither, of course, are individuals. As a group, we have this need of a mix of instruction. And it is individuals we need this. So, Paul, he's encouraged them. He's given them a lot of encouragement about his situation, about Christ's example. Of course, he has instruction about Timothy and Epaphroditus, people that are lead, uh, wanting to encourage them and be with them and, and love and support them. And now he turns to, here's some things to avoid. Here's some things that we need to get rid of. Here's some things that, again, don't matter. If joy is so important as we think about these things today, what gets in the way of our joy if fellowship matters so much, unity and fellowship, what divides us? What are some things that, that prevent us from having this unity? What should be our focus and what shouldn't? Again, if we want to have the joy and fellowship that Paul is describing. Philippians 3, 2 through 5, look out for the dogs, for those who are for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day. Now, you think, what's this weird picture? Self-flagellation, of course, I think is what he's thinking about when he talks about those who mutilate the flesh. That was, they were literally, you can see he's whipping himself. They would scourge themselves, cut themselves as a means of devotion to their deities, to the, the gods of the Greco-Roman world. They thought, if I bled for them, literally bled for these gods, then they would give me favor, show me favor in these situations. And when we think about it, he has sort of a contrast here. Those who mutilate the flesh, I think, in the Gentile world. But then he talks about his mutilation, quote-unquote, of the flesh, circumcised on the eighth day. What are we seeing here? It doesn't matter how severely we treat the flesh. And again, in their day, it had these sort of connotations of physical abuse for us. What extra restrictions? Restrictions of the flesh... Do we place on ourselves? Now, I hope nobody here is uh, cutting or mutilating their flesh. If that's a thing you struggle with, you need to come talk to somebody. We need to, to address that. That's a thing that is important to talk about and to make sure that we are uh, not trying to do that to ourselves and, and abusing ourselves in that way. But we can think about it in a more generalized sense. He talks about, in other places, matters of food and drink, things that we restrict, things that we think about how we have to treat the body, asceticism, and, and we're trying to deny the flesh, and all these extra requirements that we might place on ourselves about things to wear and things to eat and things not to wear and not to eat, and all these different things that we think, if I make my life uncomfortable, 
Think about the monks, a lot of different monks in the traditions of different uh, religions who deny themselves basically any pleasure of the flesh. That's not something God required. That's something that people added on to their religion. What do these things do to our joy? When we think that we have to restrict ourselves in these ways, we add all of these extra requirements that God did not add because why? In In a lot of ways, God made creation to be enjoyed. Think about in the garden, the things that he made for Adam and Eve to enjoy in the garden, things that he put in our lives to enjoy. Not that we want to abuse those things, take them to the extreme, but we can eliminate things that God intended for us to have in creation as part of his blessings for us. And at the end of the day, what benefit do we get from these things? Of course, we think about Paul's instructions about circumcision all throughout the New Testament. And one of the things that they were really struggling with, the Jews wanting to circumcise all the Gentiles who were coming in. And what's Paul's point? It's no benefit. These things that we do, that doesn't matter anymore. It did matter for a while. Now it doesn't. At the end of the day, when we add all of these extra requirements about how to abuse the body, we think that if we make our lives uncomfortable, then somehow we're more righteous. That's not the point. Some people live in more discomfort than others. But the discomfort is not itself the point. The point is what are we doing with the things that God has given us? Philippians 3, 5 through 6, this list of things that he has. He circumcised on the eighth day reasons for confidence in the flesh. He thinks, and he's saying what he's saying here is, I, if we're thinking about things in earthly perspective, thinking about things from a worldly point of view, Paul, I have the most reason to boast. I have circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. All these things, these, these categories that don't matter, what Paul saying, I'm the best. I'm the, I'm the one who has most reason to boast. And so let's go through this list of things. Circumcised on the day, day, we've talked about that. Of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. What's he saying here? I come from the best people. Now, again, we're, we're doing tongue-in-cheek here, right? Because ultimately, what is his point? What is the point that he's making? It doesn't matter what your race or national history is. It did before, maybe for the Jews. You think about the Jewish history. But now he's saying what? This is a reason for confidence in the flesh. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. It doesn't matter anymore. And this was a particular sore spot again for the early church, right? You got the Jews, you got the Gentiles and this conflict between them. And the Jews think, oh, we're so special. We're the ones, the history of the people of God. But now what's the point? Ah, now everybody can be an anybody. What? But we're special. We're the best. We're the Jews. And the point now is what? That specialness is no more. Now everybody can be a a Christian. Anybody can join the kingdom. And we think about our, again, our context. Race and national history do not matter. In eternity, in matters of the kingdom. We make such a big deal out of this, but the point of Paul's writing, a lot of his writing in the New Testament is to get the early church to stop thinking about things this way. You're from Tarsus, you're from Jerusalem, you're from Philippi, you're from wherever. It doesn't matter. There's no Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, nor free, nor male, nor female. All are one in Christ Jesus. 
If Paul's desire is for joy and fellowship, what does focusing on these categories do? It divides us, doesn't it? That when we place such a heavy emphasis on our race and national history, I'm from, we could even do it regionally in the country. I'm from this part of the country, I'm from this part of the country, I'm from wherever. That stuff doesn't matter. A Christian swears off that loyalty and becomes what? A citizen of heaven. And when we allow these things to become such a focus in our lives, it will divide us. It will eliminate our unity and our fellowship. The next thing he says here, what? As to the law, a Pharisee. Pharisee, of course, we're familiar with the Pharisees in the Gospels, the, uh, the sort of the, one of the religious sects of the day, the, the particular divisions of how they interpreted the law. And you've got the traditions that associated with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There's a couple of others, Essenes and, and different groups in Israel. Of course, we're familiar with what Jesus, uh, his opposition to the Pharisees, right? They're so great. They're so special that in their own minds. What's he saying here? It doesn't matter what your religious history is. Did you grow up in the church? Well, that's great. You have some benefit from that. Did you grow up unchurched? And you might think, well, oh man, I'm, I'm so far behind. I didn't grow up in the church. I don't know all the things that I'm supposed to know. Maybe you've hopped around from group to group. You were a part of this religious group, then this one, then this one, then this one. Ultimately, that doesn't matter. What matters is what? Do you belong to Christ right now? What are you doing right now? Are you growing in the faith right now? Focusing on our religious past, what does that get us? Well, for some of us, it makes us feel perhaps superior. Oh, my, my, my people, my family, they've been faithful for generations on generations. And we sort of have, we start thinking about things again in a worldly way. This is what the Jewish-Gentile divide, a lot of it boiled down to. The Jews thought they were better. Why? Because they knew God longer. But at the end of the day, that doesn't matter. What matters is, are you trying to know God now? Are you growing in his word? Fellowshipping with his people? Learning more about his will? Think about what it would have done to the Gentiles. And I think it would have been easy for them to start to feel inferior, like second-class Christians. We didn't grow up with the law. We didn't grow up with all of this stuff about God in the Old Testament. We didn't know any of that. And this divide that would start to grow again, this detracts from joy and fellowship when we think it matters so much who you were in the past. What's Paul's point? I was a Pharisee. I knew the law better than anybody. But ultimately, that doesn't matter anymore because of knowing Jesus. And I really want to make this clear. In your specific circumstance... I don't care what religious groups you were a part of. I don't care if you grew up in the church or not. What I care about is are you striving to do God's will now? Are you striving to learn more about him now? And as we grow together, hopefully we're going to learn more together. We all, wherever we are in our walk, is any of us perfect? No. We all have growing to do, don't we? And we're going to do it together. The next category here. So, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, the persecutor of the church. Of course, thinking about Paul's past, right? What are we thinking about here? It doesn't matter how passionate you are, 
how much you care. It does in a certain sense, but in another sense, zeal alone is not enough. What is Paul saying? He cared so much, he was willing to kill people. Now, we're not told specifically that Paul ever actually killed any of the Christians, but we do know that he dragged them off to the, the courts and he voted for them to be put to death. So functionally speaking, I don't think Paul makes a distinction there. I was a persecutor of the church. I cared so much that I was willing to devote my life to your destruction. But that zeal, that passion, that didn't matter. Why? Because he didn't have the right understanding. Caring on its own doesn't matter. Passion on its own doesn't matter. Now, on the, at the same time, though, we see an interesting thing here. He had a lot of zeal. He was a persecutor of the church. And so we also see another thing. It doesn't matter... What sins you have in your past? Because what's he saying? I cared so much. I was persecuting the church. But even Paul, the chief of sinners, he says to Timothy, he could find forgiveness. Do you think Paul ever thought about those Christians that he voted to die? Do you think that might have detracted from Paul's joy? think it might have detracted from his happiness? You make mistakes and our brains are so dumb. They, make, they, bring us, uh, they bring our mistakes to the forefront just at random times, right? You're just going about your day and you suddenly remember some stupid thing you did in the past. I know that happens to you. It happens to me. My stupid things are not anything close to Paul's stupid things. His sins and mistakes. Yet what is he saying? As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. And yet, he found forgiveness. It doesn't matter what the sins of your past were. I don't, it doesn't matter what you've done in the past. Again, the question is what? What are you going to do now? What are you going to do going forward? Forgiveness is available to all. No matter what you've done. And we know how this threatened their fellowship. Of course, the beginning of Paul's missionary work, the beginning of his apostleship, he goes to Jerusalem and they don't want to do anything with him, right? They don't want to be involved. And even Ananias, who's going to be the one to immerse him into Christ, he, Paul, uh, God says to Ananias, hey, I'm going to send this guy to you. You need to, you need to immerse him. And what's Ananias? Well, I can't do that. Don't you know who this is? God, this guy's a persecutor of the church. When we focus on what people have done in the past, again, it threatens to divide. But the great equalizer of the gospel is what? We all come before God as sinners. We all can find forgiveness and purity. The next category here, things that don't matter. As to righteousness under the law. I want to note the important phrase, under the law, blameless. He just got done saying he was a persecutor of the church. That was a horrible thing. And yet, as he was doing it in his life, he didn't think he was doing anything wrong. And here's the point. It doesn't matter how righteous you think you are. You think about this idea. The generic good person. We have this sort of conception in our society of what it means to be a good person. And, you know, generally you don't cheat, you don't steal, you don't lie. Um, you, you generally try to help people who need help, right? This sort of baseline level of a good person. And maybe you think to yourself, oh, I'm a good person, I do that, I'm, I'm great. I don't, I don't cheat on my taxes and, and I give to the poor and, and I don't, you know, lie to people and, you know, I, I'm a good employee. Sort of this baseline level. And again, Paul's point is what? That was me. 
I was that person. As to the righteousness under the law, I was blameless. I was doing everything I was supposed to do. I was a good person. Again, under the law. We'll come back to that. You try to do all the right stuff. That's great. I'm, I'm so glad that you're trying to do good. But here's the question. What standard are you measuring yourself by? The baseline level of a good person in our society does not measure itself by the right standard. And this is the point, right? As to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. If we are not measuring ourselves against the right standard, the law of Christ, then it doesn't matter how good of a person you are. And, of course, to the point, when we do measure ourselves against the right standard, what do we find? You're not really that good. None of us are that good. If we're measuring ourselves according to the standard of the world, yeah, maybe you are a good person. That's great. But when we measure ourselves against the right thing, against the standard that God has set for us, then ultimately we find none of us are blameless. It doesn't matter how good you think you are, you need forgiveness. When we focus on personal righteousness, we focus on how good we are as individuals, what does that do? Again, it creates one of two things. It either is going to detract from our unity because some of us are beginning to feel arrogant. Oh, I'm much better than you. You did that horrible thing. I haven't done that horrible thing. I'm so great. I'm much better than you are. Or we can go the opposite way. And it begins to detract from our joy because we get so focused on how inadequate we are, the things that we've done in the past, and we start comparing ourselves to one another and, oh, I'm never going to be as good as so-and-so. I'm never going to be as good as, as this person. And now, not only am I not in unity with them, not only am I not having fellowship with them, but now I'm losing the joy that I have in the Lord. Again, the joy in the Lord is what? That He is good enough that he is righteous, that he is blameless, and he gives that to me. So, things that don't matter, things that we focus on too much. Number one, how severely we treat the flesh. These extra requirements that we think, if I'm suffering, then it must mean I'm righteous. If I'm suffering in the right way, then it must mean that I'm better than you. That stuff doesn't matter, right? We're thinking about how can we follow God. Our racial or national history, that doesn't matter. All come to Christ equally. His nation, his kingdom, transcends the categories of human society. In China and Russia and Madagascar and Tibet, all throughout the world, Christians are devoting themselves to a higher standard, a higher way of being. Our religious history doesn't matter. Either you have been a Christian all your life, in which case that's great, or you haven't been a Christian and maybe you're a recent convert, that's great too. But what matters is what? What are you doing right now? Are you trying to follow God's will right now? Our passion and zeal, those don't matter. Unless what? Unless they are in accordance with the knowledge of God. Paul, his passion, his zeal didn't matter to him because he did not have the right knowledge of God's will. He thought he was supposed to persecute the church. Caring by itself doesn't matter unless we are caring about the things that God wants us to care about. The sins of our past, those don't matter. Forgiveness in Christ is available to all, right? Hebrews chapter 8, I will remember their sins no more. Hallelujah for that. I don't want God to remember my sins. 
I want him to forget those things, get rid of those things, be done with those things. And so when we cling to those things, those will detract from our joy and fellowship. How much of a good person we are, personal righteousness doesn't matter. If it's not met with the right standard of God's will, and when we understand the standard of God's will, we understand that none of us are righteous. In myriad ways, focusing on these matters of the flesh will dampen our joy and divide our fellowship. And so Paul gives us the alternative. Other than these things, what matters? Philippians 3, 7 through 8. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul had a good life. He was on the fast track. Think about the pharisaical sort of ideology. He's going to become this great teacher of the law. He's going to be prominent in Israel. He's going to be one of the leaders. That's, that's his track that his life is going on. And then he gave it all up to pursue knowing Christ Jesus. It didn't matter that in his society, he was going to be a, an up-and-up, up-and-coming uh, great person who was going to have all sorts of knowledge and influence and power. This led to a lot of pain in his life. This switch, the giving up of these things to know Christ. How many relationships did he have to sever? He never talks about this, but I know it was the case. Friends that he had in the school of the Pharisees. Friends that he had in teaching of the law. The friends that he had in his work in pursuing the church. You know, these relationships that he had to give up. Maybe he converted some of them. That would be the ideal situation, but I know he didn't convert all of them. How many plans did he have to abandon in his life that he thought his life was going to go a particular way and then all of a sudden that was useless, irrelevant, and didn't matter. Now he's going to do this other thing. And yet, at the end of the day, despite all of the things he says that happened to him that were bad, shipwrecks and persecutions, one time he was almost stoned to death, at the end of the day, was this a cause of joy or sorrow? What did he say? In all situations I have learned to be content. And more than content, he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. Because of what? The surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Surpassing what? Surpassing all the things we just talked about. The things that don't matter. It surpasses your earthly circumstance. It surpasses the things in your past. It surpasses where you came from. It surpasses your job, it surpasses your family. It surpasses all things, the worth of knowing Jesus. He continues, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Why well, have a picture of a trash can? This word rubbish, this is trash, right? Refuse. I count all these things as junk, garbage in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. Again, it doesn't matter how good of a person you think you are. It doesn't matter if you grew up in the church. It doesn't matter if you do all the right stuff. You need the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. The suffering of Jesus is better than the pleasure of life. The pleasures of this world. We can think about what it says in the Hebrew letter of Moses. 
who considered the passing pleasures of sin, and yet he knew that there was something better to be experienced, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The world tries to shove so many categorizations and requirements at us that we belong to this very specific box. The world, that's what it wants you to stay in. Stay in your box, your situation, your categories. When we think about what the world cares about, the world cares about some of these things, right? About personal righteousness, that it's all about what you care about your race, your national history, what groups you belong to. What do you think about all these things that the world cares about? How do you respond to these things? Do you let the cares of the world change what you care about? And you begin to care about these categories that the world cares about, these things that the world cares about. Do we let these things get in the way of our joy in the Lord? our unity and our fellowship when we allow the things that don't matter to matter. It will divide us. It will destroy us. Ultimately, the end question, the final question, what is following Jesus worth to you? What is it worth giving up in your life? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's a hobby. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's whatever. Not, and I want to be clear about this, not in the big grand gesture of self-sacrifice or martyrdom. This happens to some people, obviously, in the world. But in the small, quiet, moment-to-moment choices, what is it worth for you to follow Jesus? Paul demonstrated this mindset in his life, but ultimately we know... His instructions merely echo those of the one whom we really follow. We don't follow Paul, do we? We follow Jesus. We'll end with a couple of verses in Mark. Mark 8, 34. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What is the implied answer? Zero profits. For what can a man give in return for his soul? Again, what's the implied answer? Nothing. You don't have anything to give. You have nothing to offer. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. These questions, the implied answer to these questions. There is nothing worth holding on to if it comes between you and Jesus. No relationship. No possession. No life circumstance. No self-conceptualization. There is nothing in this life worth holding on to if it comes between you and Jesus and knowing the power of his resurrection. Mark 10, 28, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, 
There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. And I really want to emphasize this. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. How can this be? What is Jesus? Is Jesus teaching the prosperity gospel? No, I don't think so. What is he saying here? You find this in his kingdom. Look around. Brothers and sisters and mothers and children. I look at you and I see my sisters and my mothers and my brothers and my children. I've received this. Why? Hopefully because I've given up the things of this life. The promise that we receive these things now and of course in the age to come, what? Eternal life. As we conclude, we offer the invitation. What are you holding on to? I don't know. It's probably different for everybody, right? There's things in your life that you're holding on to. The invitation is twofold. If you are a Christian, you're having a hard time letting these things go, let them go. And if you can't let them go on your own, ask for help. We'd love to help you with that. But if you've never become a Christian, you've never become a part of his kingdom, you've never counted those things as rubbish, the opportunity is today to do that. To be immersed into Christ, to confess and turn from your sin, to claim the righteousness that comes through faith. Come while we stand and sing.